Step into a world of kitchens where cultures collide and flavors unite as we take a culinary journey that embodies the essence of America as a melting pot. Join us as we open the pages of a cookbook that has taught generations to cook, funded social programs, become a cultural talisman, and a tool of integration and resistance. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim. How are you? I am doing really well. I had a big life event happen this past month, actually several months. Finally came to a culmination, which is that my mentor has retired after 38 years. And so we've been very focused on seeing him out the door in style. It's been a, a bittersweet time, but transitions are. And now that I've seen him happily move out into retirement, I think now I can welcome new energy and new things into my life with that. You know, sometimes you got to say goodbye to say hello. And he's thrilled about retirement. He's very ready. So it's been, as I said, it's been a very busy very bittersweet time. And I think at a very appropriate moment because the seasons are starting to shift for us. How are you doing? Doing good, doing good. And I love the fact that you talked about, you know, saying goodbye to say hello, because we are, we're moving from summer into the fall season. And, you know, I listen to people say, oh, it's in the air. And it's true. You can feel this change. The air becomes a little bit heavier. The morning light creeps in a little bit slower Mm -hmm. and the evening seems to slide in a little bit quicker. (laughs) The leaves are changing and the fawns that travel across the back of the property have lost their spot. And the difference between the brood of turkey chicks and their moms is becoming much less (laughs) obvious. Yeah, yeah, definitely noticing the morning light arriving a little later each day. And then my appetites are changing. I think, you know, with the seasons Mm. as well, I'm feeling like I'm wanting more substantial foods and different flavors. And it's not so much I'm wanting those light, crisp summer greens quite as much, more like stews and crumbles. These are changes that we expect and some of us really anticipate anxiously. But today I wanted to talk about some changes in the late 19th and early 20th century that created some shifts that weren't as welcome as the changing of the seasons. And I'm talking about the third wave of immigration that brought over 20 million mostly European immigrants to the United States. The population of the United States at the time was about 75 million. So within 34 years, the population increased by 30%. Now, many of those immigrants found jobs in factories in northeastern and midwestern cities. But not all. As a matter of fact, many of these newly arrived immigrants, hoping that the land of opportunity would provide milk and honey, were hard-pressed to put food on their table. As a matter of fact, the story of today's cookbook saw its origins on the streets of Milwaukee as a young Russian immigrant boy, probably around 12, entered a corner store. 
His face was caked with mud, his clothes ill-fitting, and in broken, barely discernible English, he told the owner that he would sell him matches for cheap. Now, one of the customers was really pretty disturbed by what she saw, so she followed the boy out of the store, asked him why he wasn't in school, and he told her that he needed to work to help support his family. Now, his sincerity really saddened her, but it also created a deep concern, not only for his life, but for hers. Elizabeth Blackcander was born to German-Jewish immigrants who landed in the United States in the 1840s. By the time Lizzie was born in 1858, her parents had assimilated to their new homeland and culture. They spoke impeccable English. They dressed according to the current American trends. They blended in. Now, this next wave of immigrants really worried Candor. Would the behavior of these newly arrived Jewish immigrants reflect poorly on her Jewish community who had worked so hard to integrate? As a matter of fact, would it inspire a new wave of anti-Semitism? Now, this concern would fuel Candor's mission to ensure that immigrants assimilated into this American life. And about this mission, she would say, it is a selfish motive that spurs us on. It is to protect ourselves, our own reputation in the community that we must work with tact, with heart, and soul to better the home conditions of our people. And I absolutely love this. It is pure and utter honesty. Mm -hmm. There's no sugarcoating, no altruistic enrobing. It is to better my community by bettering the lives of this newly arrived community. Now, whether you ascribe to this or not, she pulled no punches. Absolutely. I think that that's an attitude that we still see today. Wanting folks to feel welcome most of the time, but also this concern about if you behave poorly, if you act badly, you are going to cast aspersions on those of us who have made a home here that have, if not assimilated, at least blended. And I usually could find somebody today that would say many of these same things. Absolutely. In realizing this mission, her journey would start at the Settlement House in Milwaukee. Now, Settlement Houses are social service agencies. There's a lot of them that still function. They were established during this time in urban areas to provide support to immigrants, including access to housing, education, health care, and other basic necessities. Now, Lizzie spent evenings teaching Jewish women to cook American dishes. Now, obviously, there was a hope and a desire that by teaching these women to cook American dishes, that integration into society would be hastened. But there was also a more practical reason, and we've talked about this a lot. The ingredients for these dishes were here. It was difficult to get Eastern European ingredients at that time. And it didn't mean that she didn't want them to abandon traditional dishes. As a matter of fact, the first edition of today's cookbook the Settlement Cookbook, The Way to a Man's Heart, published in 1901, had two sections, which included 500 heirloom recipes collected from old family cookbooks, as well as from the 24 lessons from the settlement cooking classes that she was teaching. There were recipes with American roots, pot roasts, cream cod, while others were rooted in Jewish culinary traditions, kugel, kefeltefish, and pfeffernus. Candor's mission with this cookbook is that it would serve as a resource to the newly immigrated to assimilate successfully and become upstanding citizens. But it became much more than that. 
By 1925, the proceeds from the sales of the cookbook had funded scholarships, supported a nursery school, and helped to acquire a bigger building for the settlement house in Milwaukee. Interestingly, this cookbook would serve as a symbol that the Jewish culture was recognized and included in American culture. In a recent article in Hey Alma, Lauren Hoffman describes the cookbook as wanting to be both American and Jewish. And in her words, she says, quote, the book wants to be American. It wants to be Jewish. It wants to be elegant and refined. It wants to be Heimish, which means it has this feeling that can't really be defined. And it wants, needs to be useful above all. As a primary funding source for this organization, meeting the basic caregiving needs of decades of Eastern European emigres arriving in desperate poverty, it needed both in content and in resulting demand to keep up with the crush of new information and immigration. And side note, this cookbook has seen 40 editions that have addressed new trends, information, and immigration, almost all being overseen by Candor herself. Wow. And Hoffman goes on to say, and as a manual for running a household and therefore finding and retaining a husband, it was of critical importance to women who had few other opportunities for economic safety. Another side note, this is where the original title of The Way to a Man's Heart comes from. It was a different time for women, my friends. Finding a husband meant security and safety, and in a day where women had very few opportunities to support themselves that were legal, it was critical to find a husband. Mm -hmm. Hoffman concludes... It distills the deep fear about an earnest desire for assimilation and its requirements. This book was a how-to guide for American-hyphenate survival, anxiously pursued and guided by women on behalf of their families. It's no wonder that this cookbook's handed down through generation, almost as a talisman of cultural identity. In an article by Leila Schlack, she recalls that as a child, Whenever the craving for a chocolate chip cookie or chicken noodle soup struck, she would gather the ingredients and her great-grandmother's stained and dog-eared mm. copy of the settlement cookbook, even more than knowing that the recipes would turn out. And here's another important difference in this cookbook over others of its time. The recipes were tested and codified with accurate measurements. It didn't say a pinch of this or a dash of that, but measurements like cups and teaspoons and Lizzie Kander was really very meticulous about testing each and every mm. one of these recipes mm -hmm. before they were put into the cookbook. As we learned, that, that's a huge deal. Yes. I think of Julia Child and company who exhaustively years worth of testing. I remember reading that in her biography. She would test a million variations on something. Does this small change, this extra pinch of salt, change the recipe, to, does it make it more tasty? Does it make it easier to make? So when we talk about the codification of recipes, and I feel like we still can't put too fine a point on it, it's an enormous, enormous deal. Yeah, and it's really interesting because the Milwaukee Settlement House Museum has some of Lizzie Kander's notes from the original book where she's written different things that need to be changed throughout these editions, these 40 wow. editions that she oversaw. What an undertaking. Right? Yeah. 
Back to Layla Schlack, even more than knowing that she could accomplish these recipes, she felt a connection. And she said, quote, a direct line to my grandmother, whose fancy china and mink stole were wrapped up unused in different corners of the house. Mm. And it was through this cookbook that cooks were guided through two world wars, prohibition, the depression. It's seen recipe additions such as brisket, matzo spice sponge cake, and kishka. It sold over two million copies. And when asked what his favorite cookbook was, James Beard answered, quote, If I consult a cookbook at all, it is likely to be one by one of these sensible flat-heeled authors like the famous Mrs. Kander. I have to agree. I mean, it's hard to not agree with Mr. James Beard when it comes to matters of food. <laughs> I do love looking through this book because it simultaneously is just really practical points mm. as well as a touch of nostalgia in some cases for things. It, yeah. You know, just a good time-honored noodle recipe, but then eggs. And I'm thinking back to me cooking out of the woman's suffrage cookbook. Good starting point, just eggs. We all have them. We all eat them. We all cook with them. But her general rules, which I think is hysterical, and I'm going to quote from the book here for a second. The general rules of cooking eggs and omelets, quote, the stale egg rises in water. This is true. Fresh eggs are heavy and sink to the bottom. Also true, actually, I'm not really directly quoting. Wash eggs as soon as they come from the store, which is an interesting piece of advice that might be a bit encapsulated in time, because I don't think yes, any, we don't do that anymore. In fact, eggs come washed for us, and we must keep them refrigerated because of that. Correct. Eggs should never be boiled, as that renders them tough and difficult of digestion, and they should be cooked just under the boiling point. And that I find that kind of curious and odd because what kind of boiling are we talking about? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We call them hard-boiled eggs, but really you shouldn't boil them. To her point, you bring the water up to a boil, then you put the eggs in, and you let them sit in that hot water, but you don't boil them. You should never, ever boil eggs. So that <laughs> is a good point. But for us, we call them hard-boiled eggs. Right. No, she's got a couple recipes of looking through the meats and the fishes section where... I feel like she's sous videing before sous videing is a thing. Talking about <laughs> right? tenderizing meat by cooking it under a boiling temp for, to tenderize. But I have to say the idea of creating a regimen and a process by which to help others assimilate, I find that really mm. fascinating. Yes. Because before we started the As We Eat project overall, I had a lot of assumptions about food in my family and, the, and what we did and why we did what we did. And it's been a great point of discovery for me to talk to my mom about our family history, because I've learned that some things that I took for granted that we, oh, we always do this because this is the way, you know, my British family did it, actually very much not. There were traditions that my mom brought into my life intentionally because she wanted me to have the American experience, because I'm not a South African, I am an American. Well, there are other things that I do know that she and my father ate in, in their lives in South Africa, like babuti, which I've talked about before, or, or any of the Cape Malay curries or the Durban curry, particularly. While I'm aware of those things, I'm also equally aware of spaghetti, so to speak, or pizza, or there, she just, she really, there was an actual intentional effort on her part. And I did not know that until actually recently to give me some of these American experiences, particularly in food. 
And so I could actually really respect where Mrs. Kander's coming from in terms of helping folks navigate a divergent cultural identity. At the same time, this is juxtaposed with the women in Elyria, Ohio, Right. when we were talking about Clementine Paddleford and how America eats, because on one hand, these women are especially trying to make sure their daughters remember how to cook in the old Hungarian style. So we've got this kind of interesting flow in identity at a time when, I mean, as you say, we, we grew by 30 percent, our, our population. Yeah. That's an extraordinary amount. And how do you sort out those questions of identity about where you are and where you belong and where you want to be and where you're going to be for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. My parents never went back to South Africa. I have no intention of immigrating to South Africa. I am an American. I think most people, when they choose to cross a globe to leave, not only to leave a country, but to leave their continent, your chances are pretty good that that's your new home. The thing that was just really struck me too about this was its simplicity, but it's very simple simplicity, how to set a table, how to light a fire, right. um, that you need three things, fuel, heat, and air. I was just so curious about that uh, because clearly folks did need to learn how to do that. You had a lot of these women who had immigrated, a lot of single women who immigrated, who didn't yeah. have family to help them with this. And to your point, again, this is more than a cookbook. Oh, yeah. This had, like you said, how to set a table. I, and again, going back to the way to a man's heart, it was helping these women to run households. Yeah. I love that there's also things in here about caring for children, dietary needs, the invalids, how mm -hmm. to care for sick people. I think this is one of the first cookbooks that we see that has a lot more household organization and household management direction in it than what we have looked at previously in our other episodes. You know, you raise a really good point here, like it's caught my imagination and it's this idea of, of immigration. I think we tend to, and I mean we in a big kind of community, and I also mean we as in you and me, tend to talk about cooking and learning how to cook at the elbows of our moms and our grandmothers and our aunts mm. or uncles and fathers and grandfathers. It's really, mm -hmm. we've had that conversation too about how typically mm. housekeeping tends to be a feminine activity, but it's not always limited to that. But usually we're at somebody's elbow where we're learning how to do this. And the truth of immigration, though, is that you don't often get to come with your whole family. That's right. If the point is to immigrate because you are wanting to have a better life, which is absolutely true of the time period that we're actually focusing on, the mm -hmm. early 20th century. Yeah, you might be a single woman coming alone. You might be a pair of sisters. Yeah. And needing to find and establish themselves, find the husband, as it were. Yeah. So thank you for that. I mean, there's descriptions of what water looks like when it's boiling. And I'm thinking like, oh, who doesn't know that? But then again... I'm going to call my sister out because she didn't. I remember her asking me what boiling water looked like. Sorry, Kate. I'm never going to let you live that one down. I'm actually really excited to get to cook from this because there are a lot of recipes that are not necessarily familiar to me, and yet they are. They're things that I've kind of heard about, like stuffed tomatoes. I'm looking through this getting really hungry, of course. There's some that are really fun looking like a mock roast duck. Which is basically chicken, I think. I like the hot water sponge cake. Ooh, Turkish candy. Yeah. Maple fluffs. 
I don't even know how many recipes in this cookbook, but I think that you could probably just move through this cookbook and not have to find another one. Yeah. And you know what? This actually would be a fun, not to borrow too heavily from the Julie Julia project. This would be a fun book to cook through. It would. Because there's nothing too incredibly challenging. And yet there are. Back to the mock roast duck, you have to basically deconstruct a chicken and reconstruct it as if it were a duck. I don't know if we're going to be able to pull that off. <laughs> but there's some fun things to try. L lobster chops. I've never heard of that before. But apple snow looks amazing with apples and egg and lemon juice and powdered sugar. This is going to be a fun mm. one. I'm going to do my best like I did with How America Eats. I will do my best to try a couple of recipes, see what happens. I'm really excited about this tomato preserves recipe because I shared this actually in the As We Eat journal. I have a recipe for tomato preserves from my aunt's housekeeper. I got her family tomato preserves recipe. So this one will be fun to cook to see how they are similar or different. And it's still about the right time for tomatoes. So getting those last of right. the summer tomatoes will be really mm. lovely. And the settlement houses, you know, that was actually a bit of American history that I didn't really know about. Me either. And it's actually a kind of a compelling idea that folks move into these neighborhoods to be part of them, to help. Right. And instead of a, oh, from the suburbs or from somewhere else, I'm going to come in and tell you how to live. It's more of a we're side by side living together, trying to elevate the whole community right? and not a fly in. I, I know better than you. And I think that's a really compelling way to, to approach the idea of social change and social justice. One that we, I feel like we've really gotten away from. There's perhaps a lot that might be dangerous about that as well, the idea of trying to change a community. But at the mm. same time, I'd like to learn more about the settlement houses. Yeah. When I first found this book and you know me I go yeah. into <laughs> antique stores and I find books and I'm like oh this is so cool and then of course you know the first thing you do is kind of roll your eyes at the way to a man's heart and we've talked about this so often too the one thing that drives me crazy is when people debase other times recipes yeah first of all don't yuck someone's yum exactly and don't ever judge something before you do a little bit of research to find out why is it called this? I mean, it was very obvious. Now you know why it was called this. Mm -hmm. You know what that meant with the settlement cookbook? We learned about the settlement houses, which is fascinating. I hadn't known much about the settlement houses until I got this cookbook. So yeah. it was a lot of fun to find that out. Clearly, this is from a particular moment in time. Understand mm -hmm why and and that's what we're about is like understanding the context right. and the history of something i could have poo-pooed the water lily eggs that i made from the suffrage cookbook it's a really basic recipe but when i actually tried to put myself into her shoes to think this is an easy recipe to make friends are coming over i've probably been sitting writing all morning or reading i've got friends coming over and i want to feed them something but i don't want to waste my time but i'm going to give them something to eat and so i'm going to pull together something really simple i thought that recipe the way it was written looked insane which is why i had to try it it was delicious it was fabulous if i hadn't dropped the ego and tried it i never would have right. known and so i feel the same way we're still obsessed with the idea of marriage and engagement and connecting and so let's not maybe be so mean. Let's not right. be mean. Just be nice. Just be nice. Have an open mind. Have an open heart. I'm going to reveal that I am going to do my best to make this tomato preserves one. 
Got okay. a whole day tomorrow to cook and farmer's market today to go shop. So that's right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited to have our recipe discussion in the next episode and find out what you discovered through this recipe and how it made you feel and how you could connect with or yeah. who you connected with. Yeah, I'll be revisiting the idea of that immigrant feeling. I'd probably call my mom again. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat. And please join our Family Recipes, Traditions, and Food Lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. After you've procured your copy of the Settlement Cookbook, if you would rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify, we would be so, so super appreciative. These ratings really help food enthusiasts just like you join the As We Eat community. And we believe the more the merrier. We also publish the As We Eat journal on Substack. We would be very honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, dish discoveries, and travel stops. There are three subscription tiers, including one especially for brands. We're sure you're going to find one that is perfect for you, or a friend, or two, at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor, and if you couldn't tell, a whole heaping cup full of passion. Ba-da-da-da-ba-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba